All right, well, <coughs> sorry about that. Good evening, everybody. It's, um, that's better. We've got a few people um, who can't make it tonight with illness or other things, and so we've got a few empty spaces, but we are reasonably full house, and good to see you again. Uh, we are in the final chapter, and I dare... I dare to imagine that we might even get to the end of said chapter. I'm certainly going to read the whole of that chapter, Ecclesiastes 12. I was feeling really oh, sober and somber, I suppose is a better word. Sobered by this and somber because of this chapter earlier today. Um, and when I read it to you, if you... Uh, half forgotten it, you'll be reminded and perhaps see why. Let me lead us in prayer and then I'll read Ecclesiastes 12 and um, uh, all the people will say jeepers. All right, let's pray, shall we? Merciful Father, we are grateful to you for your word, the Bible, and for its depth and richness and beauty, uh, for its solemn and sobering moments. And for your wisdom in shaping your word in these ways and drawing us into it and forcing us to think and to wrestle with things that seem difficult in all kinds of different ways, difficult to understand, difficult to process emotionally, difficult to put into practice. You've, you've not, in a sense, made it easy for us. Uh, but to put it another way, you've made your word as complex as the reality of the world in which we live, and therefore for that we're grateful. And we ask that you'd shed the light of your spirit upon it this evening as we have it open before us and speak to us, that we may hear your voice afresh in these words that your spirit inspired so many thousands of years ago. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Ecclesiastes 12. Remember also your Creator. In the days of your youth, before the evil days come and the years draw near of which you will say, I have no pleasure in them, before the sun and the light and the moon and the stars are darkened and the clouds return after the rain, in the day when the keepers of the house tremble and the strong men are bent and the grinders cease because they are few, And those who look through the windows are dimmed and the doors on the street are shut when the sound of the grinding is low and one rises up at the sound of a bird and all the daughters of song are brought low. They are afraid also of what is high and terrors are in the way. The almond tree blossoms, the grasshopper drags itself along and desire fails because man is going to his eternal home and the mourners go about the streets. Before the silver cord is snapped or the golden bowl is broken or the pitcher is shattered at the fountain or the wheel broken at the cistern and the dust returns to the earth as it was and the spirit returns to the God who gave it. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher, all is vanity. Besides being wise, the preacher also taught the people knowledge, weighing and studying and arranging many proverbs with great care. The preacher 
sought to find words of delight, and uprightly he wrote words of truth. The words of the wise are like goads, and like nails firmly fixed are the collected sayings. They are given by one shepherd. My son, beware of anything beyond these. Of making many books there is no end, and much study is a weariness of the flesh. The end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. Some of you parents know the experience when you're talking to your children of saying something that you really, really, really want them to listen to. You ever had that experience? You know that most of the time they don't really remember most of what you say, and that's kind of fine. We, we sort of muddle along through life like that. And we duplicate things, so we say things lots of times. But then just occasionally, maybe you have those kind of sit-down, looker-in-the-eye conversations with your daughter or sit down, look him in the face, conversations with your son. And you, you, like you say, look, I, I want you to remember this. I want you to pay attention. This time, I want you to listen. Ever had one of those? Yeah. <laughs> or a lot of those. Um, this is one of those. Um, this is, if you like, Solomon's last word. It might actually be the last things that he wrote. And then you've got verses 9 to 14, where uh, whoever wrote them is speaking of Kohelet, Solomon, in the third person. But at this point, he uh, looks you in the face, and he really wants you to listen to him talking about your impending death. And the years which may, in God's providence, lead up to that, when you grow old, he wants you to pay attention, please, to what it's like to approach death. Because by the time you get there, this is one of those things that really is best prepared for in advance, as we'll see. And you can actually see it in verse 1. Remember your creator when? Yeah, well done, Hannah. In the days of your youth, like... You're the perfect age for a Bible study about preparing for your old age. Uh, To introduce this subject, I want to tell you a story about Patricia Moore, who in 1979 conducted a really intriguing experiment. Have anybody heard of Patricia Moore? You've heard? Okay, don't tell the story. You'll never forget Patricia Moore after this. Um, At the age of 26, uh, in 1979... Patricia Moore conducted an experiment to try to discover what it would be like to be old. And so what she did, she was uh, a designer, but she got some help from a professional makeup artist. And she basically transformed herself into an 85-year-old woman. She uh, put a latex mask on her face, wrinkles and all kinds of things. She put a grey wig on. Uh, She 
put kind of plugs in her ears, partial plugs in her ears to simulate poor hearing. She got some semi-opaque contact lenses so that she couldn't see properly. She uh, taped up her fingers. She'd wear gloves so people couldn't see the tape on her fingers. She would tape up her fingers to simulate the lack of mobility that comes with arthritis. Uh, and she would put splints on her knees. You know those kind of um, neoprene knee sleeves that you sometimes get if you've had a, a knee injury and they've got like a, a hinge at the side? Or she put some of those in or something like that but made them stiff so that she couldn't bend her knees. And she put a corset on so that she couldn't bend easily. And she didn't do it all the time. I mean, that, that would be, But on and off, for, for three years, she conducted this experiment multiple times. And she went out in public, and she just tried to live life as an old woman, just to see what it was like at the age of 26 to be 85 or so. And she was absolutely shocked and appalled by what she discovered. So the first thing was like how she felt. She felt very physically weak and vulnerable. You can imagine, you know, she just couldn't do normal things. So she, she um, I don't know what she did to her wrists, but the result of the splints or whatever she applied to her joints meant that she wasn't able to pick up a coffee cup properly without it spilling. She couldn't tilt it and sip from it. Um, it took her 45 minutes to climb the stairs to her apartment where she lived on the, like, the fourth floor or something. Um, the poor eyesight and poor hearing that she had made her feel really vulnerable. Crossing the road became actually dangerous because you know, she couldn't hear and couldn't see. Um, she couldn't open medicine bottles and she couldn't read the labels on them. And so she realised, of course, that she was in danger of taking the wrong dose of prescription medications she'd been given. Um, and all that physical infirmity and, and the pain and stiffness, you know, it starts to become real because, you know, if you stiffen your joints up, you know, it actually you're walking awkwardly and it makes your walking more painful. Walking around for a day as an 85-year-old woman, actually, was pretty uncomfortable. Second shot was the things she learned from other elderly people who started to talk to her. And she recalls one occasion when she was sitting on a bench or sitting in a, maybe sitting in a pharmacist or something, I can't remember where, with another lady next to her who obviously thought she was very elderly herself, who was really, really upset and embarrassed because... She explained she was suffering with incontinence and you know, just, she, you know, she'd had an accident just right there and then. And she was very embarrassed about it. And the third shock was how other people treated her. Uh, she had three personas. Basically, she had three sets of costumes. Um, one uh, costume was as a very, very poor uh, lady, tattered clothing, um, unwashed, not smelling great. Another one was kind of just sort of, I guess, middle of the road. And the, other, the third one was fur coat, uh, expensive jewellery, gold Amex, these kinds of things. Um, and she went on a plane as the first uh, character. And a, a stewardess spilt coffee on her. And you know, like a stewardess, if they do that, they, they know what they're doing, right? They, not, it wasn't deliberate, she thinks. But the stewardess, having spilled coffee on her, pretended not to notice and just moved on. And she was left wondering, you know, 
would you have pretended not to notice if I'd been a 45-year-old businessman in an expensive suit? Uh, on one occasion, she was actually beaten up by a bunch of 12-year-old boys. Physically, she was, and she was unable to defend herself because her hands are all kind of, you know, she, she couldn't move and so on. And so she actually became afraid at that point to go out in character, so to speak. Of course, normal elderly people don't have the choice, right? Uh, she was regularly shortchanged in shops when she was, um, you know, especially when she was dressed in the you know, poor, slightly disheveled old lady costume. Um, uh, and the difference in how people treated her, of course, when she was dressed in all the um, fur coat and gold Amex bling was really, I don't know whether it made it any better, right, to know that she was being treated the same person, but just with different clothes, being treated so much better. At the bottom line, she discovered that growing old is an absolutely miserable experience. At least it would be if you grew old like that. And um, I don't know, I mean, maybe that's an overstatement. But her experiment revealed the kinds of things that in 1979, an elderly person who looked like her would have experienced. And it's really strange because I, I don't know how many of us think about it till we get there. And it raises the question, doesn't it? How, how would you prepare for those years? You might think you take up self-defense classes. <laughs> Come on, then. You might think you'd, um, uh, you'd carry something to defend yourself. But how would, you, how would you prepare for the physical and... Uh, sensory um, and mental impairment of old age. How would you prepare for the experience that actually uh, lots of us have observed in one way or another of watching people as they grow older becoming less emotionally guarded so that as they grow older they're less restrained and what they really are, so to speak, under the surface starts to shine through. And I've, I remember a, a, an elderly pastor, actually the pastor that conducted uh, Nicole's and my wedding, Pastor David McInnes, remarking on this. He himself was probably 70, and he said he's noticed that elderly Christians, or no, sorry, elderly people tend to go in one of two directions as they get older. That sometimes all of the sweetness and godliness and grace and calmness and loveliness shines through all the more as they become more frail and uh, more forgetful. And in other cases, people become more bitter and more cantankerous and more um, irritable and more impatient and so on, for exactly the same reason, that what they have been all along is now shining through, unrestrained by the cognitive self-discipline of youth and of midlife. And so what, what would we do to prepare? So again, you think back to Pat- Patricia Moore, you might think, well, you take medical precautions or you know, self-defense classes or something. But it's really interesting in the light of that to consider how Solomon suggests that we prepare. Because if you look at chapter 12, verse 1, he, he, his last instruction, notwithstanding the words of verses 9 to 14, which are in his book and written by somebody else, 
His last instruction is to do what? Chapter 12, verse 1. Yeah. Remember who? Your creator. Yeah. Your creator. Remember your creator in the days of your youth. And I, I don't know for sure, but um, it seems to me likely that Solomon has in mind a whole complex of different features of growing old. Um, and they're represented by three sets of images in the next few verses, which we'll look at in a second. And his exhortation to us is, when you're still young enough to shape who you are by the grace of God, remember the one who can shape you. You're in the process, we're all in the process of becoming who we will be and who we actually are. So remember your creator in the days of your youth, and then look at this. Is, is this um, a cynical, overly negative, or just a realistic assessment of old age? Before the evil days come and the years draw near of which you will say, I have no pleasure in them. Now, I've hinted before and actually we've talked about this in a bit of detail once or twice, Solomon is, is speaking about life as it really is. He's not speaking about life in some hypothetical way. Now, this is what it'd be like if you didn't believe in Jesus, but phew, we all believe in Jesus, that's great, that's all right. He's not, that's not what he's saying. He's speaking about life as it really is. But at one or two points, it becomes clear that he does lack the perspective that faith in the resurrection provides. Remember we've talked about this? Most obviously, Solomon keeps insisting that everything is vain, 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 vanity, 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 missed. Now I know we've talked about that translation and vain is not the best translation of the word hevel. But his, his summary, everything is missed. Everything is temporary, everything is fleeting, uh, Everything's beautiful, but you can't really understand it. You can't make sense of it. And then it's all gone. That is, so to speak, subverted by the resurrection of Christ and by our resurrection. So what our resurrection and the resurrection of Christ does is say, well, yes, everything here is hard to understand and vain and temporary and frustrating. But there is a perspective in the future from which we will be able to look back at this and make sense of it. There is a perspective in the future from which we'll be able to look at things and say they are permanent, yes, in, in the world to come, which is this world renewed. But at the same time, it's true that, you know, one day you're going to die. Can you see what I'm saying? So Solomon is very firmly rooted in the realities of our lives now. And scripture as a whole invites us both to reflect on that and then to shine the light of the resurrection on it. So how would we do that? When we look at chapter 12, verse 1, what do you want to say when Solomon says, remember your creator in the days of your youth, before the evil days come and the years draw near of which you will say, I have no pleasure in them? Do you want to just accept that? Or does something in you kind of rise up against it? What do you think? Issues 
Yeah. All kinds of things. Yes. Right, right. So you might get to a point where, where you think, yes, these, these days are painful. And especially those of you who've worked or are working in the medical profession, you, you will either know firsthand or know of situations in which um, a, a person has lived a good and full life and they're, they're sort of ready to go. Yeah? I, I don't know whether that's an experience that's that familiar to you. Some of us know it firsthand from or second-hand from our relatives. Um, do, do, how do you feel about describing those days as evil days and having no pleasure in them? Yeah, Mrs. Clackhorn. Right, right. When I walk. So maybe yes, yes. Like, well, this yeah, yeah. Yes, yes. 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 Yes, I almost feel like I, I want to raise my hand at the back of the synagogue and say, come on, Solomon. <laughs> um, it's interesting, um, the issue of w- whether there are things still to delight in. If you look or, or take pleasure in, in verse 1, I have no pleasure in them. The, the word for pleasure is chafetz. It means delight. Uh, uh, sometimes it means beauty, I think. Um, the same word is used in verse 10. And just look at that. Um, the preacher sought to find words of chafetz, words of delight. So put, put this together for me. I think this is, this is Ecclesiastes as a whole and perhaps Solomon himself. He's, he's, trying, to, he's trying to pull together the, the painful realities of our world with some kind of future hope. The years, I want you to sort this out for me. Verse 1, there are years coming where you'll have no delight, no pleasure, no chafetz. Uh, the preacher sought to find words of pleasure, delight, chafetz. Those years have no delight. Oh, but there are these words of delight. What, what's, what's Ecclesiastes trying to tell us by forcing those two statements together? That there's joy in suffering, and, and how would you find that? Like, how do you find joy in yeah, where, where where is the delight and the pleasure and the chafetz in this chapter? Well, in general, I would say it's because we share in Christ's sufferings. Right. 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 Good. So, that's a hugely important theme and something to explore in another time if we don't get to talk about it here too much. All of our sufferings are sufferings in Christ. All of our pain is pain in Christ. Our death is dying in Christ. And he he did all those things. 
Um, and so uh, this isn't quite how you're saying it. Um, maybe we put it like this. The fact that it's in Christ transforms its character. It, it, it makes it purposeful. Um, it means that we're not alone in it. Yeah? Yes. Um, go ahead, Mr. Bennett. Hmm. Yes. Wherever he was, whether Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's fascinating because there you've got. I mean, that's you're thinking Philippians one, where you know he's in prison and he's saying, "Yeah, this is great because I get to preach the gospel to all the prison guards, <laughs> and, and the whole palace guard now knows why I'm here." And so there's a peculiarly privileged position where he gets to see what God is doing in his hardship. Yeah. And so, you know, five times I got the 40 lashes minus one, I've been shipwrecked and the, all this stuff. And yeah. So he can, he can see what God is doing. Yes, Mrs. Bennett. Well, maybe the, um, what he's trying to say is while you are young and your mind is able to take in these words of delight, Plant yourself there so that in all the years that you're relatively healthy, God can be shaping you. And then when you get old and you can't mm. think straight anymore and you can't move and it's pretty tough, that the words that are all in here will somehow yes. still uh, be a bedrock even when our bodies are falling apart. Yeah, I think that's really true. Do you all hear what Bennett said? So, th- so there's something about the words, specifically the words that Solomon is writing, but the word of God more broadly. That's where the delight can be found. Um, and so maybe in the days of our youth, what we could do is so feed on the word of God that that's shaping us. To prepare for when we can't concentrate anymore. Right, because there's delight in them. If you, if, if you think about Solomon as a, a systematic theologian that makes you do all the work. Yeah, so what systematic theology does is it gets different bits of the Bible and puts them together and shows you how they fit together. Well, a systematic theologian who makes you do all the work will get the bits of the Bible and just stuff them together and make you figure out how they work together. So there's no delight in those old years. There's delight in the preacher's words. Go figure that out. And I think that's how, that's how you put it together. Yeah, we prepare for the years of actual pain and uh, actual suffering contempt from people who in other circumstances would be polite and gracious and, and being beaten up by 12-year-olds and not being able to defend yourself by, by being formed so that we take delight in the word of God and in, and in the words of wisdom. Can you see verse 10? So I think that's part of like, the overall picture. Um, let me pause there one second. Any other comments just on what we've talked about so far? Yeah, uh, Sophia. <laughs> Go on. Yeah. Do, do, do I think it's any moral problem with what Petition Moore did? Because chapter 11, verse 10, remove vexation from your heart and put away pain from your body. Yeah. Um, I, mm, I, mean, I, I, I wouldn't probably say that chapter 11, verse 10 speaks too directly to this. Is there a moral problem with what she did? Um, 
Well, she's doing it voluntarily to herself. You think it as a form of deception? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes, yes, yeah. Yeah, okay. No, that's fair enough. That's fair enough. I mean, I, th- I think if, if what we were dealing with in chapter 11 was not wisdom literature, but a kind of um, straightforward, blunt statement of Christian ethics, love your neighbor as yourself, yeah, um, serve the Lord and uh, put away your idols, those kinds of unambiguous ethical norms then I think, yeah, then we would say that. But we all know that we're dealing here with literature which is designed not just to inform but to provoke and to make you think. And, you know, it's not always true that it's a time to put away pain from your body. Right. So I I don't know personally that I hold Patricia more ethically culpable for that. I think it's a courageous thing to do. It would be a bad thing to impose on somebody else. Um, and yet the point of her experiment, I guess, was to see, well, let's see ahead of time what this is like, and, and, and to do so in a situation where the contrast with youthful experience is most marked. Because here's the thing, we can, you could, change takes place gradually. Somebody said to me, that, I can't remember who it was on Sunday, they said, how are you doing? I said, well, you know what? I've got a slight pain in my shoulder, and I don't know what I've done to it. And he laughed. I, can't, I think it might have been Mr. Franklin. I forget. <laughs> Sorry, if, Mr. Franklin, if it wasn't you. But anyway, I, I, I don't remember. He said, somebody said, you're getting to the age now where things just hurt, and there's no reason. <laughs> there doesn't need to be a why. You just get, you're getting aches and pains. And I thought, getting to the age? <laughs> a slightly scary thought. Um, but maybe that's right. I mean, and, and you get to... Yeah, and so you you gradually move there, and so we don't prepare, and we're this is slightly like the proverbial frog being boiled alive. We we never get ready for what's actually happening, so we're unprepared. And Solomon's saying, yeah, you should be prepared, and the way you prepare is while you're still young enough to to cultivate a soul that is devoted above all else to your creator and to his word remember your creator in the days of your youth you with me yeah so thank you it's very helpful so yeah you know i'm reminded that obviously our chapter headings are artificial in my estimation he actually begins this theme of um enjoying your rejoicing in your youth Mm. Exactly. Yeah. Eight, in all of chapter eleven, but certainly verses eight and nine of chapter yeah, eleven. Yeah, and yeah. I, I think that there's something really valuable for older men and women mm. to not desire that younger men and women um, act like older people. Mm-hmm. And we are living in an age where child uh, I don't know if you've ever read Posey's book, The Disappearance of Childhood. I've not begun. Right. Um, there is a good aspect of that adulting. Right, right. Um, but there's also the sense in which we want to foster a Christian's children being children. Yeah, and, yeah. And young people enjoying their youth. Yes. And it's a gift of God. And yet, during that enjoyment period, coming from a perspective of yeah. God, knowing that 
Mm-hmm. So I think that's fascinating. So this whole thing of of rightly embracing the different eight stages of life. I mean, just first, the exegetical point you make is bang on. If you look at chapter 11, verse 9, can you see... I mean, Pastor Shaw is exactly right. The chapter breaks are slightly artificial, and I've preached this before, and I actually went from chapter 11, verse 9, to chapter 12, verse 8 as a section. And the reason is because verse 9 addresses a young man. Rejoice in your youth. Let your heart cheer you. Walk in the eyes, like, ways of your heart and the sight of your eyes. Remove vexation from your heart. Then it says, remember also, gum, the Hebrew is like, and one other thing. Before we're done here, remember your creator. Before all these evil days come. So, this, so you're right exactly exegetically how the passage is shaped. So thank you. Now this thing about dealing with childhood in the right way, is, I, th- I think what we do is we make two mistakes at once. In some ways, we steal the youthful innocence that children should enjoy as, as a society far too early. Well, what, what, what are 12-year-olds doing being given puberty blockers because they feel confused about who they are? You know, and all of the perversities that we see in connection with everything that's been related to that whole area of life for decades. So, so you, you, t- you take an innocent child, you know, um, transgender story hour at the local library is an absolute abomination. All these six-year-old kids just looking at some man dressed as a woman or not even dressed as a woman, dressed as a, a parody. of So you, you take children and expose them to things which they're not really even appropriate for adults, but this is certainly adult themes, right? But then you've got people who are 16, 17, 18 who we still treat like children, you know? And I, I read the other day, or maybe I heard, I heard it, I heard two people talking about it on a podcast. You know... Um, the average American teenager spends less time outside every day than prisoners in maximum security prisons. Right? There's a federal mandate that maximum security prisoners should spend two hours a day outdoors. The average American teenager spends seven minutes a day outdoors. It's like, what on earth is going on? And what, what's happened to kids being kids? And... And learning to grow into adults by having, by being put in a situation where they've got the normal challenges of games where somebody gets hurt and somebody, an argument starts and they've got to sort it out themselves or they fall over and hurt themselves, they've got to pick themselves up. All these things which train you for adult life, we've taken away and replaced it with like a little six-inch screen. So we treat... Children like adults and people who should be preparing for adulthood like children. We get it wrong both ways. Yeah. Um, now, pardon me, you had your hand up, sir. Yes. yes um, the irony of this is that if you commit a crime in the state of Texas at 17, you're an adult. But yet, at 28, you're still under your parents' health insurance. Right, yes. We've got all those perversions. Yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. It's, it's very strange. Makes sense. Yes. And at 18, you Join the military. Yeah. And vote. Oh, it's this, and this it's is the. Just strange. No wonder kids would be confused. Yeah, yeah. It, it, it's the, the, the separate. I mean, this is a whole another subject, but let me say just briefly, picking up what you're saying, okay, with the, the, the separation of freedom from responsibility. 
is, is in one sense, is the issue. So you've got soldiers who go to give, risk their lives to the country and they can't have a beer in a bar when they come back to celebrate that they're still alive. I mean, I'm not suggesting that we all... I'm definitely not suggesting they should go out and get drunk, obviously, but what a kind of bizarre way of exposing people to risk and then not treating them like adults. And that, the same phenomenon, the, the, the separation from freedom and responsibility can happen the other way, where you have situations where, where young people demand, and frankly by their parents, are given freedoms, and they're never called to account for their abuse of it. So it's, yeah, that's a, uh, another subject for us to think about. Um, back here, though, just to land back in chapter 12, verse 1, it's, and thinking again about Patricia Moore, how many of us, you're, you're thinking about your future, you're thinking about your education, you're thinking about what job you might do. Uh, maybe if you're an adult, you might be thinking about your retirement savings and, and when, are we, when are we going to be able to stop work? Am I ever going to be able to stop work? Um, uh, will my kids look after me? What if they won't or can't? Um, what, um, how many of us are th- Adults now are seriously thinking, man, I, I shouldn't be thinking, how am I going to provide for myself in my retirement? As much as I'm thinking, how godly am I actually going to turn out to be deep down when all of the restraints are released? All of the times now where I self-consciously bite my tongue and don't say what I'm thinking, when I'm no longer able to bite my tongue, and stop myself from saying what I'm thinking. Will I have trained myself in godliness by the Spirit's grace at that point? Or am I just going to be a cantankerous old man who used to be a pastor till they got rid of him? <laughs> you know what I mean? What a horrible thought. Remember your creator in the days of your youth. Yeah. Now, what we've got in the next few verses are three images of Old age. It's the only way I can put it. Um, and you know it is because, verse 2, before, and then you've got, verse 2, looks to me like an approaching storm or an approaching darkness. Can you see? Before the sun and the light and the moon and the stars are darkened and the clouds return after the rain. So, what's happening? Your youth is now, and what's coming is a time when it's going to be like the, the clouds are so thick that they make the sky dark and they block out all the light. You're not, re- you're not really sure whether it's light or just really stormy. You've seen footage of um, tornadoes, yeah? You've all seen footage of tornadoes? Texas, obviously. All the weather in the world is here. Um, and you know, sometimes the cloud is so thick that it's just kind of dark grey. Now, old age is likened to that. Now, somebody tell me why old age is likened to a storm that's so black and dark that it blocks out all the light. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Chronic pain feels like it's 
never going to go away. And it's darkness. Um, darkness in Scripture is an image of what? Loneliness. Psalm 88, my friends have become darkness. People's, people's worlds become, they shrink. Yes. And, and their connections with people and ideas and places, they shrink. Yes. Because you can't go out so much. And, yeah. I, I, I don't know how much Solomon is writing this with, um, and this, this might just be the, the got to fix everything masculine instinct. And it might not be appropriate here. I'm not sure how much Solomon is actually saying this stuff because he's trying to highlight for us things that we could do something about for each other. The, the obvious thing to say, if you have an elderly relative who's, for whom the, the daytime is becoming darkness, wouldn't it be good for you to be able to... You know, and elsewhere in Scripture, you've got that emphasis. It, it, but it just doesn't seem to be... I'm not saying it's not a good thing to do. It just doesn't seem to be in the focus here. It, um, um, sun and light and moon and stars being darkened. Hmm. What, what's the question I'm about to ask you? Yeah. About governments, mm, only very derivatively. Yes, yes. Where have, where have you seen that before in the Bible? Joseph, because yeah, the stars in Joseph's dreams. What? Who? Who's going to be like the stars of the sky? Abraham's descendants. Abraham's descendants going to be like the stars of the sky. When the heavenly lights were made in Genesis 1, what were they made to do? To rule, to govern. So yes, governments, in in the broadest sense. Genesis 1, stars are made to govern, to rule. Genesis 22, is that stars of the sky or is that 17? I forget. Uh, It's one of the two. Maybe both, I forget. Um, Stars of the sky. Abraham's descendants are going to be, uh, are going to rule the world, which of course we do in Christ. Um, like stars in the heavens. Um, Joseph, then, his dreams are a true prophecy, albeit one that he shared with his brothers in a slightly self-aggrandizing way. Um, so when a star is darkened, what's just happened? Is it like an old person that can't move his body anymore and losing control of, right. of everything? A, a star being darkened is... A person, especially a king, dying. This might be what Mrs. Kaikorn you were thinking of. Go to Isaiah 13. Um, you find, oh, let's just look at it. I'll show you. Um, it's just, just after Ecclesiastes, so it's not hard to find. Um, uh, this is... I, I mentioned on, on Sunday, idly in passing, that I've been thinking about preaching Isaiah. I'm not going to do it just yet, partly for the reason I said... <laughs> I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm not tough enough to take on Isaiah. He's just too intimidating. Um, but the first 12 chapters are a kind of section, and then chapter 13 onwards is um, a series of so-called oracles against the nations. The first nation to suffer an oracle against it is Babylon. And um, it's actually a, an oracle against um, the, the king and the nation as a whole. And... Look at verse 9, chapter 13, verse 9. Um, 
Behold, the day of the Lord comes, cruel with wrath and fierce anger, to make the land a desolation and destroy its sinners from it. So this is a, a way of talking about the destruction of a nation, which of course happened actually at the hands of the Medes, the Persians. For the stars of the heavens and their constellations will not give their light. The sun will be dark at its rising and the moon will not shed its light. I will punish the world for its evil and the wicked for their iniquity. So the darkening of the heavenly lights is an image used in connection with the downfall of a nation and its king, which makes sense because Babylon ruled the world at its height and now it's going to fall so the stars will be darkened. So... That's partly what seems to be in Ecclesiastes 12.2. Samuel, you had your hand up. Wouldn't you say a, a similar something happened with the... Um, I know it's not uh, portrayed in the Bible, except in what's portrayed, foretold in Revelation, but wouldn't you say the same thing happened with the destruction of Jerusalem? Yes, yes, exactly the same. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. 70, in, in AD 70, yeah. The, the similar things happen. Similar imagery is used. In Matthew, 13, uh, Matthew 24 and Mark 13, Luke 21. Exactly right. Mm-hmm. Um, which is kind of interesting because here, so here's, a, here's a way of framing the question. And this is getting Solomon and just slightly subverting him in the light of the gospel. Like with the vanity thing and then 1 Corinthians 15, uh, your, your labor in the Lord is not in vain. Well, let's do the same thing with the death of a king. Is the death of a king always such a terrible thing? Evelyn's shaking her head and hoping that I didn't notice. She, Sarah, help us out here. Right? If, if he's an awful king, then the death of a king is, well, it's a good prophecy. Is the death of a... Can you think of the death of a king that was a really good thing for any other reasons? Yeah, Jack. Jesus. Out of the mouth of babes and infants, you have ordained praise. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? So, so read, read Ecclesiastes 12, 1 and 2 again, and think about Jesus as the star who's being blotted out. We know that Jesus is like a star, and I've mentioned this so many times before, you'll get bored of it. You can preach this bit with me. When the wise men from the east saw a star rise, they knew to come to Israel, not because the star was in the east, not in the, in the west, over Israel. It was in the east, behind them, as they were traveling to it. The reason they need to come to Israel is because it's Israel's scriptures that connect stars and kings. So that when a new star rises, a new king's been born. So Jesus is like the new star that's risen in the heavens. So maybe we're supposed to see Jesus here in Ecclesiastes 12.2 as the star that's blotted out. So now you think, these evil days where I have no pleasure in them, and the light and the moon and the stars, which are like the king of heaven and earth, are darkened. And the clouds return. (laughs) And a cloud hid him from their sight. Do you remember Acts 1? Is that such a terrible thing? I mean, isn't it a wonderful thing? It's a bitter sweet thing, isn't it? it? If we see ourselves... In this, we're thinking, oh my goodness, my my impending old age. If we learn to see Christ here, we have this curious picture of, yeah, it's an evil day. It's a really evil day when the most righteous man, the only truly righteous man who's ever lived is blotted out. 
and the sky is darkened, and then the clouds hide him from the sight of the disciples as he ascends into the heaven. And you really ought to remember your creator in the days of your youth before that day comes. Like, if you're an old covenant Israelite, you really ought to be up to speed with Yahweh worship before the Messiah comes so that you're ready for him. You see what, I'm, see what it's saying? It, I, I don't know whether that's in Solomon's mind. It seems to me kind of inescapable given the shape of scripture as a whole. We're supposed to see Christ everywhere. I think we see him here. So can you see then you've got this strange way. So Christ's death is the thing that subverts the unutterable terribleness of our death. It makes it actually not so bad after all. Pastor Shaw, you're looking at me like you got... Okay. okay. Let me pause. Any more questions on that or comments? Anything you want to throw in? We can, yeah, Mrs. Claghorn. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I think you could you could um, think of it that I have no delight in them as an expression of Jesus' absolute horror at the prospect of what lay before him. Do you remember on the cross he quotes Psalm twenty-two? Um, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Um, and you remember before in Gethsemane, he's absolutely the man who's never been afraid of anybody. He's not afraid of the devil for 40 days in the wilderness. He's not afraid of um, apparently being whipped and scourged and so on. So he goes to Jerusalem knowing what lies ahead of him. When he's contemplating the kind of death which will separate him from intimate fellowship with his father, he's like, Father, if there's any other way of doing this, really like you to let me know now. This will be a great time, you know. Take, not this, take this cup from me, he says. So I think... Jesus has no pleasure at that point. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah, Hannah. Have you got some kind of funky cross-reference Bible or have you been reading Job? You've been reading Job. That's what I'm talking about, Bible reading teenagers. Job 36.15, because that's obviously like the first Bible verse that occurred to me, just so you all know. That was right on the tip of my tongue. <laughs> By the way, she gets all this from her Bible and theology classes. <laughs> so Job 36.15 is very, very insightful. Thank you, Hannah. He delivers the afflicted by their affliction and opens their ear by adversity. Think about that. He's got people who who are suffering, he he delivers them by the the suffering. So we, we share in Christ's sufferings and so participate in what he has accomplished for us. Christ himself was afflicted and and by that affliction he's uh delivered from it and all his people with him. Yeah, very good. Thank you. Remember that when we think on Sunday, we're looking at um, 2 Thessalonians 
1, 1 and 2 on Sunday, and we'll be thinking about a church that was afflicted. And I'm going to jump into it in more detail in the next few weeks, but um, it's a church that we remained faithful in spite of suffering. So um, you carry on reading Job as well. So, um, have you read um, Pastor Toby Sumter's commentary on Job? I think it's called A Son for Glory, I, th- I think. It's quite good. It's, it's not easy to read, but it's good, worth getting. It's one of the best things he's written, I think. Yeah. All right. Anybody else got any really obscure cross-references for us from their own personal Bible reading? <laughs> yeah, sorry, you haven't. Okay, so, so old age is this approaching storm. Next image, verses 3 and 4. What's this look like? In the day when the keepers of the house tremble and the strong men are bent and the grinders cease because they are few and those who look through the windows are dimmed and the doors on the street are shut and the sound of the grinding is low and one rises up at the sound of a bird and all the daughters of song are brought low. What does that look like? looks to me like a house in the middle of this storm where all the lights have gone out, maybe all the lights have been blown out, all the windows, well, those who look through the windows are dimmed, there's no light inside. And remember, this is um, 1000 BC, so you don't have houses like your houses now. Like If you close the door, unless you've got really badly fitting windows, if there's a really, really strong wind outside, you don't feel the wind inside, right? Well, if you, have you ever stayed in a log cabin or something that, that's got really kind of uh, rough and ready walls and there's a three-quarter inch gap underneath the door and you get a strong wind outside and it'll blow the candles out? It's just, that's just normal. Well, if you've got an approaching storm, like in verse 2, then even the people inside the house will be dimmed because all the lights will keep blowing out. The keepers of the house tremble, the strong men are bent, why would the strong men be bent? Because it's windy, maybe? Why else might a strong man be bent? Yeah, he's getting old. Stooped over. Creaky back. Jack, you had your hand up. You were thinking... Trying their best, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um... Significance of the house. Yeah, yeah. Creaky doors, yeah. House, certainly tent and body, yes, yeah. Certainly tent and body are likened in scripture. Interestingly, both covered with skin, because tabernacle. Um, Adam. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's interesting. I think so. This darkened house, house is. I'll get right back to what you were saying in just one second. You know, there's this consistent wordplay in scripture between house and household. And a household is not like the building, household is what? Yes, yeah, the people who live in there. So the keepers of the household. The, the household, 
the community, the family, is darkened. And then Adam comes along and says that Jesus is the light of the world. So it's very interesting, again, you're on Ecclesiastes is just forcing us to keep these two, um, two sides of the picture together in tension. On the one hand, you've got the, the actual reality that old age is like a house getting dark and there's not, there's not much going on. You know, the grinders have stopped grinding and so on and so forth. And yet Jesus is the light in this house. And we're, we're invited to think, yeah, it, it could be different. A house that a house, the household of Jesus need not be darkened. Yeah. Uh, Aaron, you had your hand up. Yeah. Right, the strong man, which is a picture of the the devil, probably reference to the devil. Yes, there might be some some obscure connection that eludes me. Um, so I'm I'm definitely not ready to write that one off. But I'm not. I don't see anything. Hmm. Thank you. It wasn't Nan, was it? No. All right. Somebody else. Okay. <laughs> thank you, Aaron, and thank you, whoever you are. I'll check the text of all the comments tomorrow morning. Um, yeah, Mrs. Is this Bennett. connected to the, um, the, the worship in the temple came to an end when Jesus came, so the temple was dark, and now the place, the way, the place that we worship God is, no, is, hmm. is light again. Yes, I think it might be. I think it might be. I think what starts to happen here, it, when you look at all the images together, it does start to look like imagery of divine judgment, particularly connected with the ministry of Jesus and his judgment on the house of Israel. So we've already noted, who who pointed out that the light and sun and moon and stars and clouds imagery is all there in the Olivet Discourse, so-called. So remember, the the Olivet Discourse is, is a slightly highfalutin scholarly name for Jesus' prophecy in Mark 13 and the parallel passages about the destruction of the temple. The old covenant house will finally be brought down by this. And the imagery that's used is the imagery of darkened stars and, and so on and so forth. Then you've got a house that goes dark. Well, that's interesting because the temple was formerly a hive of activity and it's the house of the Lord which is now darkened. Then what have you got in verses 6, 7, and 8? Don't ask me about verse 5. I have no idea what grasshoppers have got to do with anything. I've puzzled over this for ages. I look back at my notes from 10 years ago. I hadn't even made any notes on verse 5. I don't know what I was thinking, but I wasn't understanding it. Um, Except that the almond tree blossoms. Well, almond trees were the pattern on which, guess what, the lampstand in the tabernacle and later the temple was constructed. So an almond tree would resonate in the minds of the man who, of people who knew Solomon, who built the temple with temple furnishings. Verses six, seven, eight. So six and seven are silver and gold. So temple furnishings, especially gold, being smashed to pieces. 
pitchers and vessels and so on. Um, I don't know. Uh, but maybe. In other words, maybe this is not just about we all need to remember our creator personally in the days of our youth before we die. It might also be Israel as a community needs to remember her creator in the days of her youth before her end comes in 1,070 years from, from now. Yeah, Todd. Yes. There's this sense in which, you, which whatever you're going to do, do it now. Do right. It while there's light. Yes. Because there's going to come a time apparently where that's not but the, doable. Exactly. Yeah. It's too hard. I mean, and it's really a path. It's a path of maturity as well. Yes. Let's. This goes back to the discipleship stuff that we've been doing before. We've got to establish these things early. Yes. While the the, the clay is still soft. Yeah, yeah, I like that image. Because there's this, you know, hardening that comes. I mean, I don't know exactly how Jesus changes the reality of old age, uh, mm. other than resurrection, you know, or, or but, but the point being is that it's still harder. Like, it's still like, yes, do your yes. stuff now. Don't, don't wait. Don't, don't play your little game of we're going to do college and mess around and then get, get to, it later. Yeah, so when I'm 28, I'll grow up. Yeah. Right, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, and I like the, the, the image of the clay being soft and, 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 and everything we want to say by way of caveat about, oh, yeah, but Jesus can change anybody, even the 87-year-old grumpy person. We say, yeah, yeah, but <laughs> if he could do that, why, why wouldn't you have just done it earlier when you had the chance? Yeah. The, the, I think establishing... You're right, it does connect with those discipleship themes that we've touched on before. It also, it, the actual reality of it connects with things I find myself saying to teenagers all the time. I said to some teenagers quite recently, um, you, you will not be able, humanly speaking, to just switch on maturity at the age of 25 when you meet the girl you want to marry. If you've been immature for the previous 25 years, you, you can't do it. Humanly speaking, and which is to say, barring some miracle, you, what's actually happening now in your teenage years is you are being, you are training yourself to be the man or woman that you're going to be in the future. So the way that you do your work, the way you relate to other people, the way you look after your possessions and your even things like trivial sounding things like the way you keep your bedroom tidy, you're training yourself to work in the future and to relate to your spouse and your family and to look after a home. And you, you won't be able to live for your entire teenage years and into your mid-twenties being lazy and spiteful to your siblings and never tidying anything and then suddenly get married and everything's going to be perfect. It's like you won't. You, you absolutely won't. What's actually going to happen is you've become that person. And so, Todd, you're absolutely right. We, we have this precious time now, whatever, whatever time now is for you, to seek to be formed, like you said, while the play is soft. And there is a corporate dimension to this. I think that's what the, where the John's going to hmm. You've got, you know, Israel, there's going to come a point when it's too late. Not, I mean, and not even right. just for judgment. Yes, for judgment, but for change. There's going to be, I mean, Hebrews kind of 
Yes, yes. Which I think can be instructive for churches as well. Yes. You know, where we could potentially, while, while the clay is still soft, yeah, yeah. get some stuff done. Yeah. And there may come a point where we play around long enough, we've seen this with a lot of the mainline denominations. Yes. And, and I think it, you're, you're absolutely right. And it, it, this is a missing piece in the jigsaw puzzle of many um, attempts to articulate a proper doctrine of church discipline. That is to say, we, what we want to say is a person is always welcome to come back and we always hold out hope that they will. And I think that's functionally, I kind of want that to be true, but scripture does talk about a point of no return. Um, so Hebrews particularly. It is impossible to restore again to repentance someone who's once been, etc. Now, I, I don't think that means that we can always tell where that time is. That's the point. And so because we can't tell when it is, okay, we always hold our hands open. We pray that somebody would repent. But the simple fact is there is a time. And there certainly was for Israel. And there certainly is actually for us. And it's just we don't know when that is. Yeah. Um, thank you, Sarah. You've been very patiently waiting. Thank you. Yeah, I mean, I, that, that was um, better than the best I could come up with. The grasshopper drags itself along as a, a picture of age. Yeah, thank you. The, I, I'm not sure, the reason I'm not sure what to do with it, and here's the thing, because the imagery doesn't seem to fit with anything around it. So in, in poetry or semi-poetic prose, you're expecting a kind of coherence in the imagery. We might talk about this at some point in your theology classes. In, in, in discourse material, you get logical coherence. You don't get jumping around in the argument, unless Paul is sometimes doing something crazy, like in Ephesians 3 or Romans 5, he jumps about a bit. But mostly it's logical. With poetry and, and literature that relies on images, you get consistency in the imagery. So you'll get a... a a concrete image that is developed. So you see in verse 2, sun, light, moon, stars, clouds. So you've got to put them together. So it's not just that there are no stars because you're in a room. There are no stars because of the clouds. Are you with me? So then you get to verse 5. Almond tree blossoms, grasshopper drags itself along, Desire fails because man is going to his eternal home. And my problem is I can't figure out how they all fit. And maybe you're right. Maybe it's just this grasshopper that used to go doink, doink, doink. Now it's going, I'm getting nowhere. So, yeah, help me out. And then go to Aaron. Yeah, maybe, maybe. Well... I guess that I, I also could, I can't figure out why the almond tree blossoms. Why isn't it the almond tree withers or something? <laughs> um, um, this, KB, and then we'll go to Aaron. Yeah. Sorry. No, yeah. The, the white yes. color of the almond flower blossoms is associated with the hair of the ages. That's the mindset. Say again? It is the color, the white is around. <sighs> And trees are like people. Pastor Shaw's doing this. So tree, 
Huh. That's interesting. Sorry, bear with me. Yeah, Emma. Oh, is that gray hair? So gray hair, white hair. So almond blossoms, KP suggesting, because a Bible note maybe, or, or just... It's in the Bible. It's in your... I did not suggest that. It's in the Is it... Is it a study Bible reference? Okay, so that's actually technically not the Bible, but just... <laughs> like, I know it's really good. So is it, you got the um, ESV study Bible, the NRV, or, or some other... Oh, Geneva, wonderful, wonderful, great. Okay, so... That, basically, you've got like two books in one. It's awesome. Okay. Um, so here's me coming to Bible study and being taught by the congregation, which is exactly good and probably is more often than you realize. Um, uh, so the almond tree blossoms are like the white hair of a person. Yeah. Because trees are like people. Yeah. Because someone, righteous man is like a tree. Um, Israel like an orchard. Yeah, they're like a lot of trees, and everyone says, oh, he couldn't see properly. Oh, yes, he could. He could see better than you can, just temporarily. Because Jesus has just healed him. He can see fine. And Jesus is like, yeah, no, but it's really inconvenient if you're seeing trees all the time. Let me just finish. Right. Yeah, thank you. Aaron. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I think that's absolutely right. That's the overarching framework where it all belongs. So, yes, absolutely. Yeah. Um, so, what do we make of this? I mean, try and draw a th- few threads together, then just make a few comments, if we can, about the last few verses. Um, there is this um, bitterly realistic portrayal of old age that's way beyond even what Patricia Moore <laughs> went and put herself through. Um, an approaching storm, a darkened house, um, shattered crockery, perhaps imagery of judgment on the old covenant people in their temple, because house, uh, utensils, darkness and stars and so on going, being extinguished. Um, and it's also a picture of our impending old age. And at the same time, there are these two glimmers of hope. The first is, within that imagery itself, are hints of the work of Christ. And maybe, so maybe the death of a king isn't always such a bad idea. Good job that king died. And so on. And then the second point is what it's prefaced by. Remember your creator before this time comes. There's a way of navigating this. You know, your joints will ache. Sorry. You might get beaten up by 12-year-olds. Very sorry. Um, But if you remember your creator before the evil days come, you might not be a bitter old man or a grumpy old woman. And the way that that's all then framed is with this final closing series of comments from verse 9. Besides being wise, the preacher also taught the people knowledge, weighing and studying and arranging many proverbs with great care. Probably a reference in part to the book of Proverbs. 
Yeah, it makes, it makes sense, doesn't it? And it's interesting. We, we sometimes contrast knowledge and wisdom in a way which makes knowledge, yeah, that's just head knowledge, but wisdom is what you really need. Okay, there's some truth in that. But here, it's the other way around. He was wise, but he also taught knowledge. Like, as though knowledge is a good thing, which it is. So um, to know how to navigate the world is, is what wisdom is. The preacher sought to find words of delight, and I think there's a definite echo there of, there's no delight in those old days unless you found delight in the words before those evil days come. And then verse 11, which tells you really um, why the whole book has to be like this. The words of the wise are like goads. And like nails firmly fixed are the collected sayings. Um, what's a goad? Somebody help me out with. Uh, it's very much it's used as, in, as a metaphor for instruction, but it has a, it's a concrete, specific thing. What is a goad? Hmm? Yes, it urges us. What, what, but what is it concretely? I mean, is it, pardon, Mr. Mr. Robinson, a cattle prod. Yeah. Shamgar killed 600 Philistines with one of them. It's a big, long, pointy stick. And the words of the wise are like goads, which if, must be really annoying if you're a cow. It's like, stop poking me. They don't speak. So they just go, Nuh. have you ever noticed that? Poke a cow and it goes, Nuh, and then it reluctantly trundles on its merry way. And it's not just a sort of nice rounded wooden stick because look at the second half of the parallelism some of your bibles might even have this printed in parallel lines like poetry but it's clearly kind of inverted it's a chiastic parallel words of the wise goads nail nails firmly fixed collected sayings can you see a b b a you get often get these little chiasms beautiful thank you james jordan um nails what what happens if somebody pokes you with a nail jack you bleed. Ow. Yeah, it punctures you. These words hurt, Solomon. Yeah, sorry. Can you see what he's saying? The words of the wise, that shepherds aren't there and ox herders aren't there to make their sheep and oxen feel good about themselves. They're there to help them to Stay out of trouble if they're sheep and do their job if they're oxen. And so they have a sharp pointy stick, which is like being poked with a nail. And that's what this whole book has been like. Is that not right? This whole book has been one long experience of being poked and prodded and made to bleed. Right? Mm-hmm. Yes, yes. The collected sayings, exactly. That's, that's certainly what it has in mind. Thank you. Yeah, KB. Um, this version says the words of the wise are like goats, and the words of scholars are like well-driven nails given by one shepherd. Yes, given by one shepherd. Here we are, somebody seeing Jesus in the Old Testament again. But of course, of course we are. Um, nails and one shepherd. 
And we've already just been talking about John's Gospel and some of the themes in there. So it's capitalized probably in your Bible version, one capital S shepherd. You don't get capital letters in Hebrew, but, but it's obviously a reference to the Lord. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not be in want. Um, Ezekiel 34 and um, John's Gospel and David. Why is he going to be such a great king? Well, he's out with the sheep. He's practicing. Right? Because um, uh, the kings are like shepherds because people are like sheep, which is to say stupid and in need of prodding with a goad, which is why we've got these words to do so. You with me? And so, sorry if it's been painful, uh, but verse 13, this is the end of the matter. I have nothing more to say. <laughs> you know, that's not true. Um, just fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man, for God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. We have one minute left before it's 18 minutes past seven. Should we finish early? Okay, let's pray. We thank you, Heavenly Father, for these goads, uh, these nails firmly fixed. And we pray most earnestly that uh, you would recall to our minds those times when we have been made to bleed by them. That we would remember you, our Creator, in the days of our youth or our comparative youth before the evil days come. So those days, though dark in some ways, would in Christ be filled with light and filled with hope because we know that in the end, in the Lord, our labour is not in vain. And so we thank you for him and we pray in his name. Amen. Thank you all. Before you go, before you go, just a quick teaser trailer. It's what we're going to be doing from next week. Um, Lord willing, we're going to start a new series of Bible studies. Uh, on the subject of drum roll, please. Um, thank you. Exploring eschatology, which is to say, talking about everything, because. Eschatology is about everything, and everything is about eschatology. It's not going to be a kind of rarefied, speculative wanderings Bible study. Um, It's going to be, I hope, Lord willing, a combination of seeing how Scripture from the very beginning depicts the whole shape of human history, and then seeing in the light of that how our lives fit into that. And we will get way past, I hope, some of the childish slogans and, uh, and hyper-simplifications and, and see how Scripture's richness and depth informs lots of different aspects of our lives. Anyway, that's all for next week. The Lord bless you. If we can set up for the Oaks tomorrow, that would be awesome. Mrs. Bennett knows how to do it. Have a great evening. See you soon.